Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In 1610, Galileo, using a rather primitive telescope, observed Saturn, one of the brightest points in the night sky. He couldn't make sense of what he saw. Perhaps two large moons on either side? When he looked a few years later, those supposed moons had disappeared. He was mystified. It was another 40 years before the Dutch scientist Christian Huygens solved the mystery. He realised that Galileo's moons were a system of rings. Successive astronomers added more detail with the greatest leaps forward made in the last 40 years. The Pioneer 11 spacecraft and two Voyager missions have flown by, sending back the first close-up images of Saturn. And Cassini is still out there in orbit, confirming Saturn with its rings and many moons as one of the most intriguing and beautiful planets in our solar system. With me to discuss Saturn are Carolyn Crawford, public astronomer at the Institute of Astronomy and fellow of Emmanuel College, University of Cambridge, Michelle Doherty, Professor of Space Physics at Imperial College London, and Andrew Coates, Deputy Director in Charge of the Solar System at the Mallard Space Science Laboratory at UCL. The latter two are working closely on the Cassini space mission, which is still out there. To Karen Clawford first, what does Saturn look like to someone on Earth with a powerful telescope? Well, through a powerful telescope, the first thing you notice is that Saturn is surrounded by this enormous set of rings. This is what gave Saturn this curious elongated shape when Galileo was looking at it through his very small telescope. And as you said, they are they present a different aspect to us through over a period of seven years. Sometimes you see them edge on and they just about disappear, but then they'll open up and the whole system will become brighter and you see them looping around the planet, sort of inclined to our uh, view. And the planet itself is a lovely kind of orange colour. When you look through a really powerful telescope, you can see a sort of mix of whites and creams and sort of almost like warm butterscotch colours. And again, you can see it's surrounded by a retinue of moons. It's got one big moon and there are lots of smaller ones as well. And what do you, can you make easy early conclusions from that first sighting? From the first sighting... Yeah, from, from saying, what, from what you've said, what would Galileo, what would a person with... What would they say, first of all, about this uh, planet? Well, just with the unaided eye, it doesn't look like anything special apart from the orange colour, but with the very small telescope, you would see there was something weird about it. It was kind of elongated, but you need the big telescope to make out the rings and to see perhaps they break up into different bands, that there may be gaps in the rings, that it's not just one big structure around the planet. And you might also be able to see some of the the mix of colours on the surface. How many rings are there? Uh, how long is a piece of string? <laughs> there are a, again through a small telescope. You might think there are three main bands. We now know there's a whole system of rings, and in fact, each ring breaks up into millions of ringlets. So it is a very complicated structure. But that's the only thing you see. You you need a to fly past with a spacecraft to see that level of detail from the Earth. They just look like solid bands of rings. What lies... We've got these clouds that surround the planet. Uh, What lies beneath the clouds, beyond the clouds? When you look at Saturn, you're not actually seeing the surface as such. You're just seeing the tops of the clouds in the atmosphere. We see down to about 100 kilometres. Down at the centre... There's probably a rocky core. Well, there will be a rocky core, about 10 Earth masses. But that's enveloped in this enormous atmosphere. And it's an atmosphere of molecular 
well, it starts off being molecular, but a hydrogen atmosphere. And the clouds we see are just in the top layers. And then as you go down, the um, the ga- it's gas only for that first layer. It starts to get squashed and it gets more and more squeezed. And we recognise this atmosphere of Saturn as a... a as air or molecular hydrogen gaseous in the normal sense, only in the outer layers. And then it gets more and more squashed. It becomes almost like a a liquid. It gets really dense and incompressible. And then right down around the rocky core, you've perhaps got a very weird state of hydrogen, followed by a sort of soup of ices. So you're talking methane, ammonia, water ice surrounding that central core. So there's no sort of solid surface as such that you're seeing. It's just seeing the tops of these these clouds in the atmosphere. Can you give the listeners an idea of the size of it compared with Earth would be the easiest way? Yeah, it is, well, it's 120,000 kilometres across, but that's just over nine times the width of Earth. And even that doesn't really do Saturn justice. If you looked at the volume, you would have to stuff over 760 Earths inside it to do it justice. And the other thing we should point out is that it is so far out from the sun Again, it's about nine times further out from the sun than the Earth is, that it's really cold there. It's about minus 150 degrees at the cloud tops. And at that distance from the sun, it takes 29 and a half years, well, Earth years, to go once around the sun. So it is very cold. It's a very different kind, very different region of the solar system to where the Earth is. Andrew Kurtz, can you tell us when Saturn, do we know when Saturn was formed? Well, Saturn was formed along with the rest of the planets about 4.6 billion years ago. So that's 1,000 million years ago. Um, Same time as us. Same time as us, yeah. So everything was formed about the same time. Um, So the formation of Saturn involved lots of things banging together um, in the outer solar system region, um, basically comets and things like that, planetesimals as they're called, the building blocks of planets uh, and those um, form this large core which uh, which Carolyn was talking about, about ten times the Earth mass and that starts pulling in material from the forming solar nebula. Um, so this is all all in the spinning disk of, um, of gas and dust which is eventually to become our solar system. Um, so Saturn is forming, um, it, it has the core, it has the uh, material being brought in from, from outside and there are different theories of exactly what happens next because um, it's not quite clear whether Saturn and Jupiter and the other outer planets formed in the in the place that they are at the moment. There are some indications that they actually formed um, a slightly different place and then moved um, o- over time and then come, came back again. But, but the basic formation progress uh, process is taking about 10 million years. So this is a very small amount of time compared to the 4.6 billion years since this all, all happened. But it seems to pull in a lot of what you could call the particle space debris almost, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. So um, so space debris really, for a start, is, is exactly what's happening. And so um, so bits of, bits of the forming material, the cold material in the outer solar system, so we're beyond the region, the ice line or frost line, um, which happens at about the orbit of Jupiter, about five times the Earth-Sun distance. That's where you can get hydrogen and water, and, uh, well, water um, condensing. And so these are icy uh, planetesimals really but they also carry some rock and material from supernova explosions um, uh, before this Um, and so this is is building up the core and then um, eventually the atmosphere of Saturn you end up with um, the hydrogen helium atmosphere of Saturn some other heavier stuff as well Um, but it's really um, a very primitive type of um, type of composition 
is much there, the early solar nebula. Sorry, is there a sense in which it's it's circul- it's going on rapidly? Is it settling down to be something else, or is it as it is and will stay like that as long as you can predict? Well, that, that's a good question because, of, of course, Saturn is not only the Saturn itself, but it's the rings and the, uh, the moons, so all that is not happening at the same time. There are some indications from Cassini um, that... Um, the spacecraft. Uh, the, the spacecraft Cassini, yeah. that, um, uh, that um, the rings actually formed perhaps at a very similar time um, to, to the formation of Saturn itself. How did they form? Well, th- there, are, um, uh, there are indications that, uh, I mean, some people had thought, before Cassini, people had thought it's a relatively transient phenomenon of maybe the last 100 million years, something like that, um, that, that the rings formed. But now there are new indications based on the temperature of the, the material in, in some of the rings that actually they may have been there since the formation of Saturn and there's a constant reforming, regeneration, collisions forming um, in, in that region which is sort of regenerating the rings all the time. Is the rings just a way to get, uh, to get the description out of the way or does it signify something? The uh, word rings... Uh, rings, I mean, they're, they're rings, yes. I mean, they're running... But uh, how rings. broad are they? How big are they? That's Right, sort of oh, yes. The, the, the rings themselves, um, so it's something like um, three Saturn radii, 2.7 2. Saturn radii, the main rings that we can see in a telescope from Earth. Um, Which means easily. what? Um, it's about 180,000 kilometres or something like that. Yeah. Um, so this gives you um, this gives you the, the scale of the rings, and this compared to the radius of the Earth, which is 6,370 uh, meter uh, kilometers um it's very large so um so so it, it, it's extremely big and they're not but very broad are they that's I mean, right they're very thin 100 meters so they are sort of hoops right. going around this great planet yes and in fact if, if you shrunk the rings down to be the size of the m25 or something like that um they would be about two millimeters thick something like that so so that gives you the, an idea of how thin these rings are but they're separate rings and we have the rings as karen was saying which were um, named in all order of their uh, formation, so there's A, B, C, D, E, F, and G um, rings. Um, it's in a the bit uninventive, considering all the rest of the stuff. <laughs> That's right. It? So the most visible ones are who, A, B, who, and C. Who is responsible for that? Yes, you're rather good at names, you uh, guys. Yes, yeah, normally. Pinch a lot of Greek, but they're still good at names. But yes, A, B, C, D, come on. Yes, I know. Well, you know, the, what can we do? Um, but um, we, we can't rename them. But uh, but that, that's a, a, a sort of simple way of, of thinking of them. Um, but of course, we're much more imaginative with the naming of the moons, and that uh, that is another topic. Michelle Doherty, um, can you take us back to Galileo and and just tell listeners why the moons were there, then they weren't there, and and what's going on? We're still on these rings, aren't we? What effect they're having on the eye. That's correct, yes. Well, when Galileo first looked through a very small telescope at Saturn, this was back in 1610, what he saw over a period of about 10 years was that the Saturn seemed to change. It looked as if it had a moon on either side, and the next time he looked, a couple of years later, it looked as if those moons had somehow merged with the planet. He looked again in four or five years' time, and at then it looked as if there was, a, there was a thin band around Saturn, and so it was very clear that something was changing. And it took, I think it was about 45 years after Galileo first saw Saturn, that Huygens looked through a slightly better telescope. And what he realized is it was actually a large ring system around the planet. And he thought it was a solid ring. And it was another 20 years after that before the Cassini scientist, before an Italian scientist called Cassini, after which the Cassini spacecraft is called, um, realized there was actually a gap between the rings. And this is happening because of the fact that 
the seasons at Saturn change the orientation of Saturn. So Saturn tilts towards the sun and away from the sun, depending on whether it's summer or winter. And so that means that if it's tilting towards the sun and therefore towards the Earth, the rings are going to look different. And so sometimes we see them side on and you can't see them at all. And sometimes they're oriented towards us and so you can see them in all their glory. The, uh, how, can we again talk about how, um, how the magnetic field works there? Because that's, that isn't quite resolved, is it? No, it's not. Can you tell us why it isn't resolved? Absolutely. What's the problem? Absolutely. Um, because we don't think the, the magnetic field we're measuring at the moment is actually coming from the deep interior. We think the measurements that we're taking with the Cassini spacecraft are actually measuring changes in the magnetic field due to the atmosphere. And so what we really need to do is get much closer than we've got. Um, and we're going to do that at the end of the mission. But why, why, is it, why is the magnetic field not working the way magnetic fields should work according to your current observations? We don't know. <laughs> what is it about your current observations that say to you they are not working? Okay. The magnetic field of a planet, for it to be able to be generated in the deep interior, you need there to be a, a tilt between the rotation axis and the axis of the field. And that's what we know from the Earth, and that's what we know from Jupiter as well. The field that we're measuring at Saturn so far is telling us that those two axes are lying on top of each other. And... All the theories that we understand to date say the, that the field therefore can't be generated in the interior. It must be dying. It must be decaying. But we don't think that's true. We think that the field is being generated in the interior and the effects of it are being masked by the atmosphere. So something is going on nearer the core of the planet about which yet you don't know, but Absolutely. you hope to find out yes. towards the end of Cassini, which we will come to towards the end of this program. Absolutely. If it doesn't frazzle out. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. correct. Carlin, um, the, um, Huygens identified the moon Titan in 1655. Great excitement. Can you tell us more about it? Well, it's the largest moon around Saturn, so a very appropriate name. And again, just to give you the scale of these things, it's 2,400 kilometres across. So that's bigger than the planet Mercury. So it's big enough to be a planet in its own right. But it's very exciting because when you look at it, it is quite blank. And that's because it's the only moon in our, in our whole solar system which is enveloped by a really rich atmosphere, a deep, complex atmosphere. And Cassini, the spacecraft, has done numerous flypasts of the planet and it's also when it arrived in 2004 it dropped a, pro a probe named after Huygens which parachuted down through the atmosphere and landed on the surface and it's been fascinating to discover more about what lies under that atmosphere because it is a mainly nitrogen atmosphere it's got a bit of methane in but right at the top level of the, the air you've got a sort of smog where the ultraviolet radiation from the sun and the electrons trapped in magnetic fields that Michelle were talking about, they break down the molecules and they reform this kind of haze of complex hydrocarbons and, they sh and that just envelops the, uh, the, the moon and you can't see what's on the surface. So when you do a flypast with the spacecraft, you can bounce radar signals down, collect the echoes and see what lies underneath the surface. And the moon, it's you know a, a rocky body like most of the other moons underneath all this atmosphere 
and it shows a wealth of features on the surface. You've got the standard things like your craters, you've got hills, you've got plains, you've even got sort of rippling sand dunes, well, not quite sand, but dunes around the centre of the planet. But the thing that's really exciting is that it has lakes and rivers and tributaries. And we can see these, again, from the radar signals, the way they're echoed off the planet. You've got flat expanses of liquid. But here, this is not liquid water. This is methane and ethane. The temperature on the surface of Titan, it's minus 180 degrees. Any water is going to be completely frozen. But it's about what we call the triple point of methane. And the triple point is where you can have a substance you know, either as ice or snow, as well as liquid, as well as vapour. And so on the surface of Titan, you have a methane cycle. So you'll, underneath this atmosphere, you'll have methane clouds, which form from the vapour that will rain or snow onto the surface and collect in rivers that channel down to small lakes. And we can see this active weather cycle so beneath the So you get this triple thing that we have here, which is cloud... Uh, liquid and then solid. Yeah, so on Earth we have the water cycle. Yeah. So the equivalent on Titan is you have the methane cycle. Uh, I think also, just to follow up on something that you said, Carolyn, it's one of the really interesting things about Titan is for the first four years that Cassini spacecraft was in orbit around Saturn, we didn't see any liquid on the surface at all. And so it was very clear that the seasonal cycle on Titan sometimes gives you liquid on the surface and sometimes it doesn't. And so we saw that change over a very short period of time. Andrew, uh, do you want to come in on this, on this question? Yeah. I to ask you if not. Away you go. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, actually with Huygens, it happens to be 11 years ago today, actually, that Huygens landed on the surface of Titan. So, uh, so I mean, just to think how that time has flown really quickly. <laughs> but um, but uh, yeah, the discoveries which it made was fan- was were, were fantastic. But yes, the whole idea of you know a really alien world with with methane shaping the topography but actually look looking at the images from from Huygens as it went into land it looked a little bit like the coast of the south of england you know <laughs> and, and because the processes are very similar um but but it's actually methane which is carving those structures the, another interesting thing about titan is that um sort of in the interior of titan we think there's a subsurface ocean and not only do we think there's a subsurface ocean but it seems to be over 10 times the amount of water which is here on Earth. So, you know, a really large um, amount of water. And, and there are some um, uh, some uh, little uh, boulders and, and little rocks on the surface which seem to be made of water. Carolyn, then I'll come back to Andrew. Yeah. The really exciting thing about Titan from the scientist's point of view is that it's got this nitrogen-rich atmosphere. And it's a very good analogue for what perhaps the early mm-hmm. Earth looked like before we have living things creating you know, changing the atmosphere, introducing oxygen. Obviously, it's been held in the deep freeze of space, so the chemistry, the same chemistry hasn't happened, but you've got very complex hydrocarbons on the surface. And it's a very good example of what the Earth might have looked like four and a half billion years ago mm-hmm. or so. Yeah. Can I, can I have a few uh, numbers here? Um, how far away is Saturn? How long did it take to get there? Well, it's it's about nine and a, about ten times the distance that the Earth is from the Sun. Um, it took Cassini um, from the launch in in two thousand and seven. It took till uh, sorry in nineteen ninety seven. It took till till two thousand and four to get there. So seven years. Um, so, you know, it, and that involved um, uh, flybys of um, Venus uh, Venus twice, then the Earth, then Jupiter. These are gravity assists to get the spacecraft actually there. 
Still on numbers. Why uh, are you still counting the moons? I suggested 65 because it's in the notes of one of you. But I think it's still counting, isn't it? Uh, still counting, yes. I mean, 62, 65, whatever one, one thinks. And actually, if you think about the number of individual particles, which are actually in orbit around Saturn, it's a huge number. Um, th- there's, um, there's a question of definition. What does one call a moon? What does one call a moonlet? There are moonlets actually within the rings of Saturn, within the A-ring in particular, that outermost um, ring which can be seen. Um, and those are sort of of order 100 metres, um, something like that, uh, large. Um, and they cause very interesting structures in that ring, um, propeller structures. So they look like propellers, um, you know, in terrestrial um, uh, aeroplanes or whatever. And, um, uh, and the, these were discovered by the Cassini mission because we were not able to see the detail in the rings that we, that we were able to see before. And so this gives these whole new, new population of moonlets which, uh, which Cassini has discovered. Well, to your colleague on the on on the Cassini mission, uh, Michelle, what's what's it revealed about the moon? What's the mission revealed about the moon Enceladus, and why is it important to concentrate on that? What we have seen with the Cassini spacecraft at Enceladus is it has an atmosphere. It's a very strange atmosphere. It's focused at the South Pole, and what it consists of is a vast water vapor plume which is emanating from cracks which are called tiger stripes at the South Pole. And within this plume, not only do we have water vapour, but we've got organic material, we've got dust as well. And this is a real surprise because Enceladus is small, its diameter is 500 kilometres, and so we thought before we saw the observations with the Cassini spacecraft that it was long since dead its internal heat source had died away but it's very clear that's not the case and so what we have at Enceladus we have an internal heat source we now know we have a a, a liquid water ocean under the surface but it seems to mainly be focused at the South Pole and we also have organic material as well Um, and so now everyone's really excited about Enceladus because you need four things for life to form you need liquid water you need a heat source you need organic material, and we have those three things at Enceladus. The fourth thing you need is for the system to be stable over a relatively long period of time. I never know how long that period is, but you need it to be stable over time so that life can form, and that's what we're not sure about at Enceladus. What, given that, what uh, does anybody have any views of the potential, what we might call life there? Well, yes, I mean... And what, would you, what do you call life? I mean, is it slugs or is it us? Re- no, really... Maybe um, we really, are slugs. Uh, I mean, of course, <laughs> at, the, at, the only, at, at, um, uh, at the moment, Earth is the only place where we know that there is life uh, anywhere in the universe. So to discover it anywhere else w- would be fantastic. I mean, life, it would be very simple types of life um, at, at, uh, at somewhere like, like, like Enceladus. But... There are other solar system targets as well, which are which are on the sort of prime list for for life, and so Mars is one of those. Three point eight billion years ago, Mars was a very different place. We have the ExoMars rover going there in a few years' time. We're leading an instrument on that to to look at uh, Mars to drill underneath the surface for the first time. There's also Europa, one of the moons of Jupiter, which seems to be uh, another uh, sort of prime uh, place where we have the four ingredients that um, uh, that Michelle was talking about, um, and also um, Enceladus. So Enceladus is now in this class of really potential places where we should be doing exploration and looking for signs of life. And, um, you know, I'm sure it's going to be there. Um, It's just a matter of finding it. One of the things about Enceladus, though, is what we'd really like to do is go into orbit. 
because to be able to understand a system or a moon or a planet properly, you need to spend as much time there as you can. What's as much time as you can? You need to be there during at least one season, and so the amount of time it takes for Enceladus to orbit around Saturn, which is about 16 days. So you would at least want to be there for 16 days. But it's really difficult to get into orbit around Enceladus because its gravitational field is so small. So you need a huge amount of fuel to be able to get into orbit, and that's the real stopping point at the moment, I think, is how we're going to be able to do that. Let's think. Only oh, you want to say something. And for, for me, for me, yes, both Titan and Enceladus are really good places to go back to. I mean, at Titan, we have these really complex organic molecules mm-hmm. which we talked about. So we discovered these in the very high atmosphere, the ionosphere of, uh, of Titan, and these um, these sort of coalesce to become larger and larger. We think they fall through the atmosphere to go down onto the surface. So that's another great place to to, to look for and um, for potential signs of life as well. What about the other another moon, Phoebe? Well, Phoebe's just another example of the oddball moons you seem to get around Saturn. It's the outermost moon. And we think it's actually a fairly latecomer. We think it's an interloper to the whole system. And there are various clues that lead you in this direction. First of all, when you look at it, it's not sort of bright, white and shiny like so many of the other moons. It's sort of dark. It's heavily cratered. It's small. It's irregular. It's only about 200 kilometres across. But the, the key thing about it is that, first of all, it orbits Saturn the wrong way round. Okay, you've got the Saturn's turning on its axis and the rings are turning in the same direction and all the other moons orbit Saturn above the rings, uh, you know, above the equator of Saturn in the same direction. And then you've got Phoebe that's going the other way round and it's not going in that flat level plane aligned with the rings and the other moons, but it's following an orbit that's tilted relative to the others. Do we know why? Well, presumably it hasn't been incorporated into the system, settled down into the system or... We think all that sort of in that rotational sense is inherited from the formation of Saturn, the rings and the moons. They all form at the same time from the same little sort of chunk of solar system. It kind of you build up that they share that rotation that was inherent in the original system. Phoebe comes along later from another direction. It's captured into orbit around Saturn and it has hasn't had so long to settle down and kind of conform with the rest of them it's also right on the edge of the system it's like four times further out than the next nearest moon and the other weird thing about it it is enveloped within the last ring of saturn that was discovered i mean it's relatively recent in 2011 because it's a very dark ring it's made of dark dust particles and we think this little moon is actually generating that ring um it's right in the outskirts of the system it's really exposed to um, meteorite impacts, micrometeorite impacts from the outer, well, the wider environment. And as they pulverise the surface, it trails in its wake a kind of debris that builds up this ring. If you like, it's uh, like Pigpen from Charlie Brown. It's just <laughs> leaving this trail of dust in its wake and it's building this outermost ring. Mm. Andrew Coates, is there any reaction between the moons and the rings? Uh, well, certainly. I mean, this, this moon Phoebe, um, which uh, which produces all this stuff, um, that has left a trail of material which Carolyn was talking about and that actually ends up on the surface of another moon, Iapetus. Um, so that is um, a, another moon in the outer region of, um, of, of 
Saturn's uh, environment there. Saturn's almost a mini solar system in itself with all these moons and so on. Um, and so Iapetus is, you know, it was a, a, a mystery for a long time as to why one of the surfaces of, of Iapetus was relatively dark, the other one relatively light. The sort of leading edge was uh, was um, was dark, the trailing edge was was light. Um, and um, it seems that it's this material from from Phoebe which is, which has done that. But there are lots of other interactions between the between the moons and the rings as well. There's very tiny shepherd moons um, within the main uh, near near the rings of Saturn, uh, the main rings of Saturn, which can kick material out of um, the rings of Saturn and I then move. Shepherds things in. Uh, well, yes, yes, it's, it's sort of moving things around at least, and um, yeah, sometimes you lose things, right? But um, uh, but um, uh, so so you get this whole idea of um, of material being moved around, um, and so uh, in particular in the F ring, um, there's there's a particular uh, moon where where you can see the rel- the the. Uh, repeated interactions, gravitational interactions between the uh, b- between the moon and this ring, and in, in Saturn's rings, um, there's some of the activity which, which has actually caused stuff to go out of the plane and cast shadows onto the ring itself, which which you can actually see during the time when when the rings are edge on, as we were talking about before. Michelle Doherty, why don't we know precisely the length of a day on Saturn? It's a bit embarrassing, actually. <laughs> We've been in orbit for quite a long time, and we don't know, and. There are a couple How long of have been in orbit, just to remind us. We went into orbit first uh, of July two thousand and four, um, so almost twelve years yeah. now. Um, it's difficult at a gas planet to be able to exactly know what its rotation is. It is a big is. gas tank, really, isn't it? It is. Yes. Yes, and it's not as if, like you can on the Earth, you can watch a part of the surface go round and measure it. Um, and so, what we usually do is we use proxies. At Jupiter, we do this. We use uh, the repetition of radio signals, we use measurements of the magnetic field to actually work out what the rotation rate is. But at Saturn, it's much more complicated because of the fact that these radio signals and the magnetic field, depending on whether you're looking at them or measuring them in the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere, depending on what season you're measuring them in, they seem to be different. And so you can be tracking a radio signal in the northern hemisphere and and in the southern hemisphere at the same time, and they're giving you different rotation rates. And so it's very clear what we're measuring at the moment is not the interior rotation rate, but it's something that's going on in the atmosphere. Carolyn, why is the visible surface of Saturn so different from Jupiter, which is another gas giant? It's mainly because it's colder. Saturn has got all the same activity in its atmosphere that we see in Jupiter. You've got those clouds that are stretched by intense winds in the atmosphere to form kind of rings and bands around the planet. And between those bands, you get um, vortices start swelling up. So you've got hurricanes, you've got storms. However, Saturn's just that bit colder and you've got a higher level of smog which obscures the lower levels. Jupiter's just a bit warmer and it's more transparent. It doesn't have that. So when you look at Saturn, and particularly when the Cassini spacecraft looks at Saturn, you don't see this level of detail, as you say, in the visible. You need to use ultraviolet infrared to see down through that haze, down through that smog. And then you can track all the wonderful and weird hurricanes and storms that are going on beneath that that haze. And Saturn's incredibly active. You've got, like Jupiter's giant red spot, Saturn has transient giant white spots where you've got fresh ammonia ice crystals well up from underneath and break out on the cloud tops to form a big white 
spot. You've got um, hurricanes within the clouds. You've got winds ripping, whipping round the whole system about sort of 500 metres per second. Phenomenal speeds. Mm. And Saturn, again, we keep saying this, it has unique things in our solar system. It has two enormous hurricanes above each of the poles, one at the North Pole, one at the South Pole, with you know well-developed eye walls down above the pole. And the amazing thing about the northern hurricane, the northern storm, is it is hexagonal. Mm. It mm. is a perfect hexagonal shape. It was discovered when Voyager flew past in the 1980s, and it has remained stable all the time up to all the time that Cassini's been watching it. And we think it's to do with a faster-moving jet stream that's kind of zipping around faster than the surrounding atmosphere, and you can build, build up eddies that retain the shape. But you wouldn't necessarily expect it to be stable. And it is surprising, if it is that easy to form, that we haven't seen it in any other system. So Saturn has its own peculiarities. Andrew goes... Um Space exploration has actually depended entirely on the developments of technology in some ways. It's, it's, te- it's almost technology-led, isn't it, really? What, what sort of equipment do you have on Cassini? Well, the Cassini um, uh, spacecraft... I mean, briefly, we don't want to know every bit and piece, but <laughs> yeah, broadly uh, speaking... OK, broadly speaking, there's, there's 12 different instruments, and they, they look at imaging in various different ways, so it's looking in the visible, the infrared and the ultraviolet. And these are variations on telescopes? Uh, yes, I mean, to, to measure some of those wavelengths, you have to go above the Earth's atmosphere because the Earth's atmosphere actually mm. um, uh, absorbs those. Um, so there's the imaging experiments like that. Um, there's the um, in-situ measurements like the magnetometer, the plasma instrument, which we're involved in, um, and uh, uh, other instruments to look at the magnetic field and the plasma environment, the particle environment of Saturn. There's also um, instruments to look at dust. So altogether 12 instruments on the Cassini spacecraft, and then there were six on the Huygens probe as well. Um, So each of these looking at their particular um, speciality in terms of uh, trying to put the picture together of what it's really like at Saturn. Michelle, you built one of these instruments on the Cassini about 20 years ago. What information does that bring you, and what more information do you want a better version of it to bring you? The instrument that I'm responsible for, I didn't build it, but I'm now responsible for it, um, is the magnetometer. So what it does is it measures the magnetic field in the vicinity of the spacecraft, and it measures the three components of the field and the magnitude as well. And what I find so interesting is if we built it now, it would be much smaller, it would use a lot less power, um, and it would be much faster. Um, And so, you know, when you think about it, when you're involved in missions to the outer planets, you start designing and building instruments 20, 25 years before you're going to be taking the data. So you need a lot of patience to be involved. Um, I'm actually building a similar instrument for the Jupiter mission called JUICE. And and the instrument is much smaller and it's going to take exactly the same type of data. And so you're, you're right, the tech the technology changes over time but you're still focusing on taking the data that you need. Cassini comes to an end quite soon and it has a most dramatic, you have a most dramatic ending in mind for it, this kind of uh, this kamikaze plunge to the centre which Absolutely. is going to take just a few minutes and somehow you've got to catch it. What are the problems and what's the point? Well before we dive into the atmosphere and burn up we're going to have 22 very close flybys to Saturn. We're going to be inside of the rings, we're going to be about 3,000 kilometres from the surface, from the atmosphere. 
Um, and that's going to allow us to measure the internal planetary field, which we don't think we've been able to measure before, and the gravity field as well. And then right at the end of the mission, we're hoping we're going to be able to take data as we dive into the atmosphere and burn up. So we're going to point the high-gain antenna, which is the way we get data back from the spacecraft at the Earth, and we're going to be taking data as we go in. You don't look too. Uh, you don't look a hundred percent confident about this, Michelle. I'm pleased well, to say. I mean, know, I'm pleased to say so it makes it exciting. <laughs> I, so when this thing goes, you don't get messages back for. F- it's only going to take half an hour before it burns out, as I understand. That's correct. But you yes. get messages every forty minutes. So have we got a problem? Well, well, no. It takes us forty minutes to get the data back. Right. And so, hopefully, the spacecraft would have sent the final data back. It would have. It would have died. And we will then receive the data 40 How minutes How far do you think that. it gets before it's going to... Is it going to hit the rocks, the rocky centre? No, it would have burnt up by then. Really? Yeah. No, I would expect it will burn up somewhere in the top part of the atmosphere. Yeah, so probably uh, about the first 100 kilometres yes, or something yes, like that. I mean, there, there yes. was a similar um, uh, end of the mission to the Galileo mission at Jupiter, and that uh, that did a similar similar type of thing. So it's a natural end to the mission, but this unique data at the end is, is very important. Yes. And it's a return to the rings, um, because very early on in the Cassini mission, when we first went into orbit, we flew just over the rings. One of the things we discovered with our instrument was the, um, the formation of the ring atmosphere. The atmosphere has a ring an atmosphere itself involving oxygen so that was one of the early interesting discoveries but a return to the rings going inside the rings looking at the radiation belt which we which we think is is there as well Um, and then this last uh, plunge which will help to look at the interior structure sorry but there are these great number of moons as well caroline and we've said at least 60 odd janus and uh, epimetheus uh, epimetheus uh, are they important? What are you learning from them? Are they? Are each, well, it's, a rotten, no, it's, a, it's a rotten question. Is each of the moon teaching you something different and important? Well, in, important is the wrong word. It's just really intriguing. You've got a couple of moons, Epimetheus and Janus. They're tiny moons, about 110 kilometres across. They're probably formed from the same original body that broke apart. And they almost share an orbit. And they their orbit separated by only fifty kilometers, and that's mu- you know that's less than the diameter of the moons. And you would think that after all these mm. billions of years of in being in orbit around Saturn, they would have collided. But what they do is the well the the moon on the inside is moving slightly faster than the one on the outside, and it will lap it every four years. Mm. And instead of just colliding when they draw close, they do this sort of neat little sort of pirouette where they swap gravitational energy and the faster moving moon on the inside gets slowed down by the other and moves out to the outer radius and the other moon gets sped up and moves to the inner radius so they just swap orbits and then they'll drift apart I mean, and like a couple of horses on a race track exactly and they'll do so this how does every... that happen well we wish we knew this is the <laughs> only you know this this is why saturn is exciting you, especially for numerical dynamicists trying to work out how a large number of gravitational bodies interact with each other this is the only pair of co-orbiting moons we know about co-what? that do co-orbiting moons right, right. sharing an orbit that do this little sort of little shift there's, there's, there's another thing which is unique about the saturn system because it has uh, uh, you know associated with some of the larger moons there are moons at what's called the lagrange point so it's in the same orbit as that moon but just a little bit further round in that orbit at a stable point and this is the only moon which has that uh, only uh, planet which has that type of moon with uh, with these lagrange point um, uh, uh, 
moons as well. So it's a it's a really intriguing system and uh, full of detail, and uh, we're just beginning to understand it. Are we talking, Michelle? Are we talking about with your with this mission, this Cassini mission, mm-hmm. having found out an enormous amount you know, that has to be digested and, <clears throat> and 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 put together and so forth? Are we talking about oh, we've just <laughs> sorry, but just touched the surface, and there's masses more to find out. I mean, yes. what do you feel? Yes, I, I, what Cassini has done for us is it has shown us some of the highlights of the Saturn system. It's allowed us to make discoveries that we really weren't expecting to make. I mean, if I can focus on Enceladus, what Cassini, the Cassini spacecraft has done is it's shown us that it's active, it has liquid water under the surface, and potentially uh, an environment where habitability could form and so what we need to do is we'd like to go back and understand it better and so it's 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 almost it's it's like a stepping stone onto a better understanding what do we learn about our this planet from the study of saturn carolyn well it's just so different from earth that it's it just makes a tremendous comparison about how different planets can be and when you scale things up how it can deviate from the earth the earth is not the norm and certainly when you look beyond the earth to around other stars many planets around other stars are giant planets not necessarily with rings and moons like saturn but resembling these gas giants and so perhaps we can understand them a bit better by understanding our gas giants closer to us but it shows us you know what you know what the weather's like on a planet where which is all atmosphere without any mountains or seas or anything to affect it the storms within the atmosphere it shows us what it would be like if you have this whole retinue of moons it just gives us a completely different object to study completely different environment there's almost a sort of a tick in listeners including myself so i'm listening to you that says well do we learn anything that is useful for us here now well, I mean, we learn, for example, we can test terrestrial meteorology using the, um, uh, using the um, atmosphere and, uh, and dynamics of, of Saturn's atmosphere. But I think there's another thing which is really important. Titan is sitting there. It's got all these um, uh, very complicated organic pro- uh, compounds. It's got an atmosphere which is very similar to the, to the um, Earth's early atmosphere. In four billion years, when the sun explodes, it could be another Earth waiting to happen. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Andrew Coates, uh, Michelle Doherty, Carolyn Crawford. Next week, we'll be talking about the great Thomas Paine and his revolutionary pamphlet, Common Sense. I wonder why we haven't done it before, but we haven't, so there's a treat in store. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Well... Now, <laughs> the inevitable question, what didn't we do? What we, did we miss out that was important that would have made the day? Caroline, well, I'm going to step out now. You, you've got, the, you've got the, this bit of the programme completely. We didn't point the fact there are a lot of normal moons around Saturn. No. <laughs> no, they yeah, know, we didn't out of, do... Out of those 60 moons, I mean, most of them are tiny. You've only kind of got 13 or so that are big enough to yeah. be around. But a lot of those, like Rhea and Dione and... Tethys, they're just your bog standard rocky icy moon yes. full of craters. So there are 
ordinary well nothing's ordinary around Saturn but there are very standard moons around Saturn and as well. four of those discovered by Cassini himself so you know it, it, uh, it really it's sort of true. takes us back to uh, to, the, to those early times so uh, and when we were talking about the rings and how the moons and the rings interact yeah. what we didn't say was the fact that Enceladus actually generates the e-ring these these yeah. plumes that yeah. spray out the sort of microscopic ice particles yeah. some of them fall back onto the surface of Enceladus but a lot of them disperse and they form this sort of very wide Wide, fluffy e-ring. That's correct. Mm. Yeah. That Enceladus. And you know, in. every once in a while, I get asked the question: How long can Enceladus continue yeah. to form the e-ring? And I don't know the answer to that. Uh, you know. How much longer will it be able to produce this water vapor plume? That, well, uh, yeah, I mean, if you calculate you the it, the amount of, uh, you know, the l amount of time which it could potentially be there doing that is the age of the solar system. I mean, based on the amount of material inside it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, but I mean, presumably the E-ring's quite easily, dis you know, pushed out away because it is so so light and fluffy do you not need to sort of be continually replenishing it i mean is it quite a transient feature do you think yes it? i mean not all the rings are being are being replenished being all, yeah. all the time and so so then the e-ring absolutely no exception of course you know it got and us there the smoking gun which is causing all this stuff be it to be to be um to be pushed into the e-ring and so that um that's happening so material is coming out both neutral a lot of neutrals coming out but also charged um dust grains coming out as well which we were able to see with with our instrument and those are amazing because they they move they deflect in the magnetic field mm. of um, of Saturn so it's like a huge mass spectrometer and it's really <laughs> nice school, you know just like a school experiment i think the final thing on enceladus is we didn't talk about how the activity changes you you have these cracks on the surface that are opening and closing mm. yeah and so the amount of material that you're seeing changes depending on enceladus's orbit around saturn when it's closer to saturn so the tidal forces are stronger there's more. There's These more are like material. Geezer, the geysers in Iceland. Yes, yeah. Yeah, they are. Yes. Absolutely. No. But the right, really neat thing is that Cassini, the spacecraft, has been able to actually fly through the plumes and sample. It was it was really quite cute. You know, we had a close flyby, 25 kilometre flyby, and my instrument is on a long boom that sticks off from the side of the spacecraft, and the problem was the uh, mission controller said they're never going to do that close a flyby again mm -hmm. because they almost felt that the spacecraft was about to tumble because oh. the atmosphere of the plume right. caused it to get a little bit wobbly on its motion <laughs> and so they're never going to do that again. <laughs> And, and I suppose with Cassini, actually today, I mean, even, you know, I mean, the mission is going on. And, of course, there's a pass through the ring plane again today. That's right, um, And there's, there's a, um, you know, there's a possibility of looking at some of these rings which are affecting the, or some of these moons which are affecting the rings, close flybys of that pictures being taken and so mm. on just as we speak and of course you know as we said the end of the mission is going to be spectacular but there's still some flybys to do before that and I think what we didn't touch on as far as the end of the mission is concerned we talked about the really close flybys right at the end but prior to that there's a six month period where we're going to be going very close to the edge outer edge of yes. the rings and so we're going to be flying right over the rings yeah. and taking images that we've only ever dreamed of being able to take yeah yeah so will we sort of be going past like the f ring that sort of very thin braided ring thing like or is it just more a general view over the rings it's i think it's inside of the f ring yes. I it's think between it's, yeah. the f and the it's, main rings yes oh, and, fabulous. It, and actually the, the 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 going through the ring system today 
is in that region. Oh, um, okay. So, oh, oh, no, sorry, it's just outside the F-ring. But the, afterwards, it's going to be inside the F-ring, I think, yes, and uh, and then sort of doing doing those types of orbits and then going inside of the rings as well. So those last orbits actually inside the rings, just just amazing. And I of course, the possibility... We, I'm, I'm, sorry about this. I'm sorry about this, all you listening to this. <laughs> I think we're going to... Back to Earth, OK? Well, here's the producer, Simon Tillerson, with BBC tea or BBC coffee in small quantities. <laughs> there are many more science and discussion programmes from Radio 4 to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio 4.